Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie, your host, and I must confess, I almost didn't make this podcast episode. I'm two days into being on crutches, having basically had the most ridiculous accidents. I fell over in my house and have fractured my fifth metatarsal. So a, a footballer's injury done in a really mundane way. And I was thinking, oh, I might not do the podcast. Nobody will mind. My foot is a pain. I have to hobble up the stairs to get into my voiceover booth to, to make the bits and bobs I need to finish off the episode. Maybe I won't. And then I gave myself a stern talking to because part of this whole mission that I'm on with making this podcast is to help you out. And I've got such loyal listeners and I thank you for your support that I thought, actually, no, man up, deal with it. And so I've got my um, my foot rested and uh, my crutches are, uh, are nearby and, and off we go. Um, so welcome if this is your first time listening to the podcast. If you've been with me for a while, like I just said, thank you so much for your support. One thing I do want to just remind you of is the different ways you can get in touch with me on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Fertility Poddy. So it'd be great to hear from you, whichever social media you prefer. And on Facebook, I have got a page for the Fertility Podcast, but I actually have a closed group, which is called Talk Fertility. And And what I've done is invited some of the wonderful fertility friends who are experts in this world to be admins in the group. And so unlike a lot of the other support groups where they are amazing and it's a lot of people going through treatment giving each other advice I hope that the experts that I've got on hand can maybe give you a bit more insight so do go and join up and um, let's all get chatting a bit more. Now My guest today is a lady who really puts the spotlight on the importance of doing what you want to do once you've been through fertility treatment. And the reason I say that is because she completely changed her work as a result of having to go through treatment. And I feel really strongly about this because I know that the way I work in my day to day has changed since having treatment. I don't work full time. And uh, as a result, my uh, my cash flow might not quite be where it could be for now. Uh, I get to spend precious time with my little one. And I wrote a blog recently about how I'm still dealing with this whole secondary infertility side of my journey, which I'm going to be doing uh, an episode on later. So I'm not going to talk about that too much now, but I'm just really interested to focus more on how infertility affects your attitude to your job, to what you decide to do once you've had treatments, whether it's been successful or not, whether you've changed the course of your career as a result, whether you've taken time out and stopped working, because it's something that as soon as you find out that your root parenthood isn't going to be straightforward, it, it, it obviously has an impact on your work life. It has an impact on everything, but that's what I want to focus on today. So we'll hear from my next guest who is a coach. She'll tell you all about her journey and what she's doing now. And as always, I hope it's of interest. So I'm now going to welcome Sarah Banks to the podcast. Sarah is a fertility coach and we're going to talk about her journey because she didn't have the easiest route to becoming a parent and then her decision to leave her job and become a fertility coach to help others. So Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. 
So first of all, let's talk about your journey because I know it was quite lengthy. I know you've got two babies, two two small people in your world now, but uh, it was your first child that I think the struggles started with. Is that right? It is, yeah. Yeah, me and my husband, we've been together since we were 18. We've been married just kind of over a year, 18 months when we decided to start trying for children and like everybody does, thought it would happen uh, straight away. The first month I was actually late and thought, brilliant, it's happened first time. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, it hadn't and it took us six years to, to get him. So we did what everybody does, you know, you sort of start off the first few months, you think, you're still quite positive about it. <clears throat> and then as time goes on, it gets harder and harder. I think emotionally it's really tough because you start to question why it's not happening happening and this one thing that you want just doesn't seem to be happening for you so you can be positive to start with but then the doubt starts creeping in thinking well what if it never happens for us it must have been about three years before we went to the doctors and I'm not really sure why we waited so long I think in honesty it was probably a bit of well I don't want to make a big fuss about nothing you know I'm sure it'll happen we're probably just not doing it at the right time how old were you if you like don't mind that. me asking 27 so you're still quite young started, in the general fertility scheme of things yeah yeah, so just turned 27. Um, at this point, all our friends had children, so we just assumed that was the next step for us as well. So yeah, as I say, it was probably three years before we went to the doctors about anything. Um, we went through the usual tests. Um, it, it was all very much from what I remember. There's not a huge amount of support when you're going through it. It's just very kind of medical, go through the tests and you get your results. And it was found that we needed to be referred to the um, fertility clinic in our local hospital. So we were referred there, had um, more tests done, and it was found that it was male factor. Right. Um, so my husband's sperm count was low, and at that point they said, right, we'll put you on the waiting list for ICSI because it was a male factor. So yeah. we then went on the waiting list, which was about a year at that time, um, which was really tough and as I'm sure you'll know yourself and all the listeners time just goes by so slow you you think of everything in terms of another month another month that it doesn't happen and when you're just waiting to to get pregnant and to start treatment a, a year is a long time and what about your husband how did he feel and if you don't mind me asking how did it, did it affect your sex life because I think with male factor because you know you assume that it will happen naturally even if you know that there's a bit of a issue with the guy, I think it can have quite an impact on, on their confidence. If he did, he didn't say anything at the time about it. It was definitely affecting me more, whether he was just not showing it. Um, at, when we've spoken about it later, because we've been a lot more open since um, we've had treatment, he did say he, he struggled, certainly through the treatment, seeing me going through treatment from something that was seen as being an issue on his side as I say they once they find male factor they don't tend to investigate as much with the females so there could have been an issue on my side as well but it was we were referred straight to ICSI so he felt bad that I was going through the treatment and having to do the treatment um but for me I saw it as our issue and we very much tried to keep it as our issue it wasn't his it wasn't mine it was a joint issue it does put a lot of pressure to perform mm. at certain times and mm. we were working till late both of us and then you're exhausted and you you want a baby desperately so it, it does put quite a lot of pressure on you but we tried to as I say see it as a problem together and we got through it together as well 
So as far as the treatments with the ICSI, were you successful first time? Uh, no, we had I had a bit of a sort of rough time with the treatment. Um, it started off fine in terms of um, stimulation, but as treatment went further on into um, my injections and my stimulation, it was clear that I was overstimulating. Right. So the nurses did pick up on it and said I was looking at risk of overstimulating, but we carried on. I was on the lowest dosage anyway of, of the stimulation drug but they did warn me that I might be told I had to have all my embryos frozen because I was at risk of ovarian hyperstimulation which I found really hard and I I argued not argued with the consultant but I was saying no well I wanted to go ahead anyway I don't mind I'll go ahead and in hindsight it was definitely not the right thing to do to go ahead because I think, was so ill sorry to interrupt you but the conversations that I've had about OHSS and these warnings are given was explained to you how debilitating OHSS is and the severity of it because I'm I'm not sure that when people hear this term and they're told they're at risk is it it's forgive me if I'm wrong but that they've really explained the, the like I said the severity of it not at all our local hospital has an information evening which is brilliant um, and they do explain the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation but it's a very small section and it's that you know, these could be some of the side effects, but there isn't much gone into it. And I've attended these meetings since and I have, have thought to myself, it, it doesn't really do it justice to how ill I was. Um, and as I say, at the time, I desperately wanted them to carry on with embryo transfer. Um, when I got to egg collection, everything was fine with that. But they came and said to me, uh, yeah, you, um, you're definitely at risk of over high, ovarian hyperstimulation. I had 45 follicles when usually they expect around 15. Yeah. Um, so, and at that point I felt really ill. As soon as I came round, I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. Um, I just, I could barely get out of bed. So I was there for quite a few hours before they'd let me go home. And as I say, even at that point, I was still saying, well, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I really want you to go ahead with the embryo transfer. I think when you start on the treatment journey, you're just desperate at that point and you just can't imagine waiting any more months for a transfer. Um, Anyway, uh, the consultant rightly said, no, there's no way. Um, And... I went home on a very potholy road, um, being able to feel my ovaries banging together. Um, I could feel something banging and it was just making me feel sick. And my consultant said afterwards, yeah, that, that will have been your ovaries. Um, and I had two weeks where I could barely move. Um, yeah. I nearly missed the christening of my goddaughter because I couldn't stand up. Um, my husband nearly had me admitted to hospital twice because he found me sort of slumped on the bathroom floor. So yeah, it, I don't think there is enough information about how, how debilitating it is and the risk as well because I kind of thought, well, I can cope with not being well. I still want the transfer, but the risk is that it will just get worse if an embryo is transplant, is um, transferred and it's successful, then the OHSS can get worse. So right. you're putting yourself and the baby at risk and you'd be really ill. So um, that wasn't really explained either because then you can sort of reason with yourself that actually put the a ba- potential baby at harm mm. um and not just me so um that happened in the april and then it was the end of june when i was well enough to have my first frozen transfer so um the frozen transfer kind of process i found a lot better you don't have to do the injections it's a l- much less invasive on your body so we had our first transfer I felt really positive and really hopeful I think I thought that as soon as we started treatment we'd be successful 
So I, I was just really positive. We were having our transfer. We were due to have our test on our wedding anniversary. So it was our fifth wedding anniversary. I was due to have the test on. So I thought it's fate that I'll I'll get a positive result on our on our anniversary. And anyway, it wasn't. Um, okay. It was a negative result, which um, I was devastated, really devastated. Uh, I think I'd really built my hopes up. Um, about it and as I say I just assumed it would work for us Um, and it took me quite a while to get over that I was I was upset at work I found that I was having to sneak into meeting rooms and just cry because I couldn't hold it together we had quite a few pregnant people in the office which is was really hard and just talk to me about work for for a moment your your work environment was quite stressful quite long hours quite an important role that you had yes I I worked as a senior product manager at the time so I was looking after a range of cards and gifts and quite a big budget to look after it was quite high pressure with it being retail and it was quite fast-paced I worked in an office full of women, so there was often, well, there was always somebody pregnant there, always some announcements, so the work environment was quite emotional as well because you're constantly reminded of that. Yeah, I used to go home crying quite a lot of days because I was stressed, I was tired. I'd work in the office till seven, go home and have tea and then work till midnight at home. I'd be working at weekends, so obviously that's not really... helpful when you're trying for a baby and what about any advice or support at that point when you'd had a failed transfer did your clinic advise or offer any um no and this is a big thing for me that there's a big fall off of treatment or support after a failed cycle so they have counselors there but we got the call or we rang up to find out our result we're told it was a negative and then it was basically you have a follow-up appointment so you go from being at the clinic every day having tests then going for your egg collection your transfer where you're having a lot of contact with the clinic your hopes are really high to suddenly finding out that it's a negative and then there's no support no contact it's almost like you go cold turkey from from the whole process because you've just dropped off a cliff yeah. with it um so no um and that was a big reason for me kind of changing what I do and um setting up the support groups that I run that there was nothing there so nobody although my friends and family that I told could be sympathetic nobody understood exactly how I felt and how devastated I was at that point um and I, I think there's a big area where there needs to be more support there because I know from the women that I speak to that that is the real that's the the hardest part of the process of finding out that it hasn't worked and that just massive drop in in how you feel and I know that often people just then retreat into themselves from the people that I've spoken to and just kind of take the blame and feel guilty and hide away from the world as as a kind of self-protection but not the most positive type but it's true and you do you you're bound to kind of look at the things you've done was it that I did this was it that I did that did I not eat well enough did I not relax enough and for me I definitely felt like I'd had a big review at work which was actually the day of my test result and I'd had to miss the review but in the run-up to it I was working really long hours still I tried to cut back a bit but I did I was very conscious of the fact that I'd not done everything I could in terms of de-stressing myself and relaxing Mm. as much once I'd had my embryo transfer and You do look to reasons why it hasn't worked and I think some of that is a protection thing because then you think well if I change that for next time I could increase the chances. So you look for reasons of why it might not have worked 
because then you feel you can change the outcome but that doesn't mean that you blame you you can blame yourself as well and yeah as I say because people don't understand they try and sympathize but maybe don't say the right things which makes you kind of feel like you don't want to talk to them about it anymore it's more upsetting than just like you say retreating into yourself and were you having to make up stuff at work or was there somebody were you able to communicate anything about the treatment because I'm always interested into how people manage that work life balance when you're going through treatment it was quite tricky actually I did tell my manager that I was going through treatment it was a difficult conversation to have not helped by the fact that she told me that she was trying to think about whether her and her husband start trying and then announced that she was 12 weeks pregnant a few days later right uh, which wasn't very helpful but she did know so in terms of allowing me time off for appointments there wasn't a problem there I did have to kind of hide it a bit from some of my colleagues and we had two offices we could work in so quite often was saying oh I had to nip here and get this Um, and then I had to lie when I went for my egg collection saying that I was off especially because we had a big review so to book time off on holiday would have been no one would have believed I'd done that around review time so it wasn't great time in that way so I, I lied and said I was having like a minor stomach operation just because I thought it's something people won't really ask much about yeah. um, and then I was off because of the OHSS as well so it kind of tied into that uh, but yeah there was only my manager that knew so she was very good at allowing me time off but then when I told her went in to see her to tell her that it hadn't worked she said to me sometimes it's God's way of saying that people some people shouldn't have children is what she said to me which oh my goodness tipped me over the edge to be honest yeah so um, I wasn't very happy about that as you can imagine then yeah the next transfer wasn't so bad I just booked a week off holiday so nobody asked questions because I'd just booked a week off so I managed to get around it that way and obviously with frozen the frozen transfer it's there's not as many appointments so it wasn't quite as hard to hide but yeah it was difficult and I know I've had quite a lot of people speak to me in support groups about how to manage it and and often it is helpful just to tell somebody because it's quite difficult to lie if you're if you're having to have appointments every day about why you're late for work and you know could cause more tension so if they're able to it's worth confiding in somebody that that they trust Mm. that could almost cover for them even if it's not a manager someone who could help them or speak to HR if they don't feel comfortable speaking to their manager yeah no, completely agree. And let's let's move forward on your on your journey because we do have a positive outcome, don't we? Yeah, we do, thankfully. I feel very lucky that I do. We'd ended up with two blastocysts from our forty five follicles. I ended up with two blastocysts. So wow. the first one I know. Uh, the first one didn't take. Um but then thankfully my second one did and he is now four years old. The day we went for our test doing, the nurses were amazing with us. We could tell they wanted it as much as we did and then we had to ring the unit at twelve o'clock to find out the results. But one of the nurses rang me at about ten to to tell me that it had worked, that it was successful, um, because she didn't want to leave me waiting any longer, which I thought just showed how much they care and that mm. how much the um the clinics want it to work as much as you do so yeah we we thankfully um we'd got the positive results um I did struggle through my pregnancy with kind of believing it would happen I was so happy and felt so lucky so I didn't complain once I loved being pregnant but I think going through IVF and struggling to conceive does take away some of the 
the happiness of being pregnant for yeah. you yeah because you know it I'd got it into my head that I'd never have a baby and right up until the point that I gave birth I was convinced something would happen because of that so I do think it's sad you you know you put through going through years of trying and then you know difficult fertility treatment to then still be worrying afterwards but you know well it's really valid that it did It's really valid and I'm actually going to put a link in uh, the show notes of this episode about a chat I had with a midwife called Katie Eves who has been working with midwives to help them understand how women who are pregnant after infertility treatment feel um, to help that process because I think it's a a continued journey, you know, when, when it's been a struggle and you get pregnant and you're successful like you've just described and then what happens next? I mean, I know it's had a massive impact on my life on how I've decided to continue my work and, and I know that it, it's done a similar thing with you. And was it at that point, once you had Jack, that you decided to not go back to your job and to train up to become a coach? Because am I right in saying you had coaching ahead of your second transfer? Yeah, I did. After my fail cycle, I knew I wasn't in the frame of mind for it to work. I just kept thinking it, it's not going to work. I'll get the same outcome. And I knew I needed to do something about it. So I went to see a coach who was an anxiety coach who worked through a lot of things with me. But the main thing that she kind of taught me was to, even if you can't stay positive, focus on stopping the negative thoughts so every time you feel negative just tell yourself you know it's not helpful thinking that you're more likely to make something happen by feeling negative and it really helped me every time I worried that it wouldn't work I kept saying to myself no stop that same with all the way through my pregnancy I used the same techniques and while I was pregnant I'd already got a bit disillusioned in my job it was very sales focused and I remember sitting in sales meetings on a Monday morning thinking I'm not doing anything to help people here. I'm basically making money for shareholders and um, I'm not helping anybody out. And I wanted to make a difference to people, you know, who needed it. I, I believe, you know, the stress of my job contributed to not getting pregnant. And another fact was I didn't want to go back to somewhere where I'd have to work full time and, and leave my son every day when um, I'd worked so hard to get him you know I've gone through so much to get him I wanted to um, be off with him more than I was working um, and I wanted to do something where I was helping back so I was very kind of right from the start it was a case I want to retrain to be a life coach to work with people going through fertility treatment because of the difference it had made to me and I believe it was a contributing factor in my second cycle working um, so yeah I retrained um to um, be a life coach and then about three months into my training I found out I was pregnant naturally so after you're one of those people I am don't feel bad about it I think there's such guilt attached to this next phase isn't there yeah and I do feel very guilty and I run support groups now and I almost feel guilty mentioning my daughter and which is awful because you know I went through so much to get my son so that and they're both miracles because we we just assumed that with us wanting a second we'd have to go through treatment again my son was only 14 months and I wasn't in I wasn't in a frame of mind of being able to start the process again at that point and yeah luckily I fell pregnant naturally so it it put on hold my plans a bit I didn't feel it was appropriate to be doing fertility coaching while I was pregnant obviously um so I focused on getting qualified um and I qualified two weeks before I had my daughter um I took a year out to 
to be with her because I was feeding her and things. So I, I wanted that year with her. And then I set up my business fertility coaching. But another big thing I wanted to do within that was give something back that I felt was missing. So the support groups. So I set up two online support groups, one national and one regional, and two regional support meetups as well. Because as I said earlier, it, it's a huge area where there's no support um, there's nothing in my area of anything about infertility or, and I didn't know anyone who was struggling um, let alone going through treatment so a big part of what I did was wanting to set up a free group where I could get people together and give a safe space for people to it's so important well we're going to put all the details of the groups in the show notes but I just want to go a little step back to your journey and falling pregnant naturally after ICSI because I think it's a really interesting one just to put a little bit of a spotlight on because personally you know we had ICSI and we're at a point where we're trying to see if anything might happen but ultimately you know we've got three frozen embryos and we in our minds know that that's the route that we're probably going to take and we've got a timeline in our heads but it's quite interesting that you've fallen pregnant naturally after a male factor issue and one of the things that I try to I suppose get people thinking a bit more about because we had a conversation with the urologist about our diagnosis and one of the things and I'm no expert so with everything I'm saying this is from conversations I've had is that often when it is male factor, ICSI is given as the as the route, the protocol that's needed, rather than further investigation being done with the guy. And if ICSI is successful, then that adds to the stats with ICSI, you know, as a as a valid treatment. But we know, I don't know whether you were told, because I think I blocked it out, that the success rates for ICSI aren't that high. They're like 30, 35%. Were you given that stat? Uh, yes, I, I think so. Like you say, I think you block out some of the things and you yeah. get so much information to take in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were kind of just told that's the route. Like we were. You're taken and you, yeah, it, you don't have much choice in it. So that was our only option really. I do think it's worth for men listening or for any women listening, if you've been given that male factor diagnosis to feel free to ask questions because I I think that we are told that that's our route and we accept it. And I'm not saying that the medical profession professionals don't know what they're talking about because of course they do. And ICSI has been a massive breakthrough with fertility treatment. But I do think it's worth knowing that more questions about male factor can be asked because there's lots that can be done to improve count and mobility, um, changes to lifestyle. And there's all sorts of research and there's episodes in this podcast that I will happily put links to in this. But I was just really keen to highlight that, especially as you're an example of having a baby naturally after having ICSI I think that's really interesting yeah and I'd say that applies for the whole process as well I find a lot of people in the support groups talk about they can't remember what was said or they ask a lot of questions in the support groups so I think people need to feel comfortable going and asking um you know it's a really important thing it's a very involved process so go armed with all the questions and if you're still not sure make another appointment and go back and ask the questions it's so important to go into it feeling confident that you know what's happening to you and why certain things are being done because it'll add to your kind of positivity and confidence that it it could work 
and take away the worry of well why am I doing that should I be doing that yeah so I think it's it's an important point for for anybody going through treatment to ask those sorts of questions and feel happy to ask questions yeah now just before I let you go um I wanted to talk about one of the blog posts that you had written uh which is called is infertility making you lose friends and um I know that this happens a lot with the people that I talk to about how we retreat and distance ourselves and one of the points that you make is you talk about creating a how to tell me plan so just talk me through that because I love that I think people, whether they know or not that you're going through fertility treatment, it can be awkward telling people, well, if you know your friends are going through fertility treatment or struggling, it can be awkward to to tell them that you're pregnant yourself. Um, and that can sometimes result in people hiding it and then finding out from someone else or big announcements being made when you're out having tea and it's very difficult. I know from personal experience that whenever I found out that someone I knew was pregnant, it was really, it really hurt. It was really upsetting. I was obviously over the moon for them um, and then felt guilty for feeling the way I did. But it was just another reminder that I wasn't and that it was it's so easy for somebody else and that they had what I wanted and it would always upset me. Um, and if you're in a situation where you're all out having a meal together and somebody just announces it across the table, it's very difficult to control your emotions when something is so important to you and it can be very difficult then to hide it from those that are there. So it's based on the fact of telling your friends that, look, I'm finding it difficult hearing announcements. It's not that I'm not happy for you, but please could you if you you know if you are trying and you find out you're pregnant could you either send me a message separately so that I can deal with it and then I can speak to you and I feel you know when I've controlled my emotions and I feel strong enough to talk to you about it or could you message my husband so that he can tell me and I can find out in my own space where I can just feel how I feel without fear of upsetting somebody because your emotions are so raw when you're struggling that every pregnancy announcement it's like a knife to your heart Mm. um and you don't want that to be kind of broadcast to everybody when you you get an announcement so it's based on that really just asking friends to be sensitive around how they're telling it's not that you're not happy for them but it's just you're struggling yourself and you need to be able to deal with it in your own way first such good advice can I tell you an insensitive baby announcement that I experienced whilst we knew we were going to have to have treatment we were at dinner with some friends and when they brought out dessert the hostess brought out a dish with a tea towel over the top and lifted off the tea towel and went da da and there was a scan picture as dessert put down on the table (sighs) and I nearly spat my drink out I think it's a, such a vital thing to self-protect and, you know, hide yourself. Because I was lucky with how I dealt with that. I, I mean, I'm surprised at myself, but I nearly fell off the chair. <laughs> oh, well, you did well to control it. Yeah, that's a very public way of, of doing it. Did they know you were going through treatment, did you say? I think they had an idea. So I think it was um, something that was forgotten. But unfortunately, as we know, whilst it's all consuming, whilst we're going through it, even sometimes when you've told people, they still don't quite get how much it becomes a part of, you know, what you're going through. And so that's a prime example of people that knew yet overlooked it because they just didn't understand the severity of how impactful what they did 
was. I think that's why it's so important to raise awareness of the emotional impact of infertility and IVF as much as possible because the more information that people have and more awareness, the more they'll know how to help and support those that they know and there'll be less incidences of insensitive comments and over-the-top announcements to people who, you know, will clearly take it, you know, very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think there needs to be a lot more awareness raised of that. Well, Sarah, we'll put your details on the show notes, like I said. Um, If you're listening in the UK, Sarah's based in Yorkshire, is that right? Yes. So the groups are in Yorkshire and Bradford, so that's the north of England. (laughs) Um, If you're listening outside of the UK, then um, she does have access online, don't you? So again, all the details will be on the show notes and some lovely lovely blog posts that you've shared and it's lovely to to hear your story and to know that you've found this support group that you can be a part of as well as coach people because it, it still has an effect on you having gone through infertility despite having you just described the guilt that you feel about having a daughter which you know it needs to be worked through doesn't it this journey that we're on and yeah it's still um when i talk through my story talking about the the thoughts i i i thought i would never have a baby still upsets me and i get to meet these amazing people in the support groups and um, i've become friends with them and there's been positive results there's been those who are still heartbreakingly you know on their journey yeah and these amazing people i i feel very lucky that people share their stories with me you know yeah. and they'll sit and talk to me about it so i'm very privileged to to have that um, I'm very lucky that my treatment worked. Yeah, I do feel that. I'm very conscious of that. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. I get exactly the same reward from the stories I get to hear, like yours. So, Sarah, it's been lovely. And best of luck with it all. Thank you. And we'll keep in touch. All right, Thank you take you. care. You too. Thanks very much. Cheers, Sarah. Thank Bye. You. The Fertility Podcast is supported by Ovusense. If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, OvuSense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class 2 medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and fits like a tampon, so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. Now you use it at night while you sleep and then in the morning you simply remove, wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now OvuSense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit ovisense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey and you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk or call 0333 so the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Sarah Banks. And I'll put different links there and um, remind you actually of the Facebook group and ways that you can get in touch with me that I mentioned at the start of this episode. One thing that I want to tell you about, which I'm really excited to share, is that I'm going to start taking the podcast live. So the first date is going to be in Manchester. And if you're interested in coming to a live episode of the Fertility Podcast, then the details are going to be on the show notes. You need to get in touch and register to come along. And um, like I say, I'm going to be doing them around the UK. This is just the start of what I think will be a really interesting discussion. It will enable me to capture how you're feeling 
when I'm doing my travels. And in an ideal, I will be able to come wherever you are. So just get in touch. Let me know if you think you'd like a podcast live where you are. And I will see if I can make it happen. All right. Thank you again for your support. And until the next time, 